it seems like it's an all too common question. Is there any hope? And I've always listened to that question with great interest because I kind of wonder what motivates the question. Is there any hope and what does that mean? What are we hoping for? Where are we going? Well, my almost immediate answer to that question is, of course, there's hope. As long as there's a God in heaven, there's hope. And, and we shouldn't forget that. But people still ask, is there any hope? And they have that sometimes framed in specific ways about things in their life. And I understand that. But one of the things that we decisively answered last week here, when we looked at the story of, of Elijah, particularly his encounter on Mount Carmel with the pagan prophets, we learned that, yes, there is hope because God stands with his faithful people. So the short answer is always yes. I can't guarantee that what you specifically want will come to pass. Uh, we could have all kinds of crazy wants and hope fors. That's not what we're talking about. But we do need to recognize that God gives us hope, and, and he is our source of hope. And this week, we're going to look at that in a little more specific sense about our source of hope and God's solution to the problems people see and the things they ask about when it comes to hope. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us today on Faith Is. This is the place where we recognize that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we have that confidence because it's well-placed. Our confidence is in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God who sent Jesus. And so we have confidence that God is trustworthy because he's demonstrated his trustworthiness over time. And our challenge is to stretch each other in God's direction and to make sure we all have that kind of confidence in God. And I want to prod and press us to do just that, maybe inspire us a little bit, maybe inform us so we can recognize we have good reason for hope and confidence in God. Because even on the darkest days, even in the most difficult seasons of life, God is undiminished, and there's always hope, and he has shown over and over and over again that he can redeem the most difficult times, and he can give life in the midst of the most trying, pressing circumstances. So we want to press on toward that, and we want to recognize that there is a solution that God has to help us with our problems, and, and no surprising, that solution involves us. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not um, uh, chase that just yet, because I, I'd like us to, to talk about a couple of things. And, and as a pastor, and I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, it's the church that allows me the opportunity to do these programs and encourages our time together. It's a wonderful group of people. I was talking to some people last night, and, you know, we all recognize that church life can be challenging, and, and it can be difficult, and it can stress us sometimes. All of those things, I think, are part of life, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. But some people give up on church. They, they um, shrink from it because, well, it's not scratching their itch exactly, or I often think because they're just unwilling to engage in the 
the stuff of life. They're unwilling to press through each other's nonsense. And there's always some of that that seems to pop up. And it's not because people are necessarily ornery rascals. Uh, there are some of those occasionally, but, but we have different perspectives. And so those kind of things we have to wrestle with. And I, I've come to conclude that it's the wrestling with all of that stuff and the pressing forward and the not giving up on God or each other that shapes our lives and makes us better people. So uh, church life is good. And I want to encourage you, if you don't have a church, find one and, and recognize. I heard a guy say recently that uh, people need to realize that it takes two or three years to really be comfortable in a church because you just have to get to know the people there and, and learn how to fit in and learn the way the rhythms, you might say, of church life, the way things are done. And so I'm grateful for our church because I said to the people last night that one of the things that I've noticed is that our church seems to have fewer of the kind of challenges that people face in churches. Oh, it doesn't mean that we're always 100% agreeing with each other. People who have to make decisions make decisions, and sometimes people are a little unsure whether that's the right way to go. Well, I get that. That's happened to me before, but we don't quit on each other because we disagree. We press forward, and if somebody makes a mistake, we don't throw them overboard. We, we learn from that, and we go forward. So anyway, a little bit about church life. I think we all need to take that more seriously because people are, are all too tempted and I think it is a temptation. I think it comes from the evil one, all too tempted to give up on churches. Don't give up on churches. Jesus established the church, and he calls us to be a part of it. And if the church isn't what you think it should be, then engage in making it better. Just do it with humility and realize that sometimes when we engage, we don't make it better. We accidentally mess up. Well, we're going to press forward, aren't we? Let's just press forward and go forward on this. Now, in the context of being a pastor, and that's kind of where I started, is I notice things that go on in the world, and I try to try to make sense of them for the church, for myself, and, and maybe we can make sense of th some things for you today as well. And so before we get into a look at one of the fascinating Bibles, stories of, of the Old Testament and the continuation of the Elijah story, I want us to talk about something that's gotten my attention recently, and that's all of this talk, and, and maybe you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, well, good, you've been escaping that or not paying attention. I don't know which, <laughs> but, uh, but there's this idea of misinformation, and you hear this crop up, and, and people will oh, seem to wring their hands over the problem of misinformation. And I've been listening to that and puzzled by that and thinking about that and, and wondering where they're going with that. And I think I've got some sense of that. I, this is always a developing sort of conception. Any of the things we talk about, they always develop over time, whether it's um, the battle between truth and falsehood or this concept of misinformation. Well, misinformation gets my attention because misinformation seems to imply, and again, it's how the word is used and the concept that people are describing that matters. It's not so much the dictionary definition. In fact, I didn't even look up the dictionary definition because that's not the point. The point for us is to begin to notice how people are using these concepts, these words to describe concepts 
so that we can make sure we sort out what's really going on. So misinformation, misinformation matters to me because I want to make sure I tell people the truth, particularly when I study the Bible and relate the Bible stories and concepts to people. I want to tell them the truth. I learned a long time ago that that quest for telling the truth, we might say, is is characterized by a phrase I read in, in a very insightful little book. And it, the author said we need to keep the sacred story straight. I think about that all the time. Keep the sacred story straight, because that's what I want to do. And when, when I got that idea, it really resonated with me. And, and related to that, of course, then is, well, I want everyone to keep all the stories straight. Does that make sense? And, and so I think about that in, in relation to this concept of misinformation. And I think that the way this concept of misinformation, this word misinformation is used these days, is a deliberate attempt on the part of some people to guide us in the way they want us to go. So when they use the word misinformation, I think what that equals is they're saying anything that disagrees with my perception or my beliefs or my understanding, anything that disagrees with me is misinformation, and therefore it's bad. Well, how can that be? Because people disagree all the time, and, and i I'm pretty sure that all of us have changed our mind about things from time to time. And so how can somebody who has a different idea be branded as misinformation when I might be wrong in the way I understand things? So you, you kind of get the idea of that. And, and, and because they're, they're dealing in this idea of misinformation, I, I'm convinced that what they do is they try to keep people from hearing opposing beliefs. Now, some of them aren't quite ready to admit that. Uh, they're talking about that, and they're talking about what do we do about the, as they say, the problem of misinformation. And, and that's, that means that there's got to be something done to keep what they're calling misinformation from you and from me. Well, I always thought, still do think, that we ought to put the ideas out there and the concepts and the so various solutions to problems, and let's talk about it and let's come up with the best answer. But they seem to be concerned that they don't want people to hear certain ideas or certain facts, even, that they're calling misinformation. Well, there's another word for that that we need to face up to. And the very same people, so often, it seems to me, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush and these kind of, maybe you'd call them stereotypical descriptions are are uh, sometimes not very helpful, but sometimes they're right on. So I just want you to follow me along here. And I want you to think for yourself as you notice this idea of misinformation cropping up in the public conversation. Now, what we used to call misinformation and the, and the refusal to communicate certain things, in other words, the hiding of certain things, we used to call that censorship. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, we still do call that censorship. So if some people are saying there's misinformation out there and they're keeping that from you or from me or from anyone, then isn't that censorship? Can't we have a free discussion of the ideas? And censorship is a pretty ugly word to most people, and it should be. 
And I think that we need to be very careful when we consume media of various kinds to make sure that that we're not being led down the wrong path. In other words, are they keeping the story straight and telling us everything about it? So keep in mind when you hear the word misinformation, it should go ding, 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 ding. That sounds like we're headed towards censorship. And I'm afraid we are. Today, in the public conversation, and they're not really hiding this, they're talking about it openly. And usually what people talk about openly ends up happening. And then when it starts happening, see, they've already justified doing it. So they don't have to admit to having done it. So today, supposedly serious journalists, and I say that absolutely intentionally, supposedly serious journalists, and many of them who are quite influential, by the way, uh, whether or not you think they're serious journalists, they are influential. They're openly talking about the need to practice various types of selective reporting so that they will deliberately not tell us certain things because they believe that either tells the story the right way it needs to be told and they don't want to muddy it up. They want everybody to believe what they're saying or they think it's false or something else. But uh, you, you get the idea that this, this whole business of censorship is a bad idea. They don't want to tell you what they don't want you to know. That's what it, that's what it boils down to in this, this idea of, of misinformation and censorship. So when you hear this kind of stuff going on, when you get wind of this kind of stuff going on, ask yourself, why don't they trust me to sort out all of this stuff for myself? Why don't they trust me to be able to tell this idea is good and this idea is bad? In other words, sometimes I say, why don't they think I have a good enough baloney detector to figure this out? Because if you have a good enough baloney detector to figure out that misinformation and censorship is a bad thing, you've got a good enough baloney detector. Okay. So ask yourself, why don't they trust me? Ask yourself, who do they think they are? Because isn't it a, an arrogance that says, I'm not going to tell you certain things because I don't trust you with that information. I know better than you. And so I'm going to keep it from you. So ask yourself, who do they think they are taking this idea of misinformation to censorship? Ask yourself, what are they really hiding? What are they really hiding? You know, you, you and I, we lived long enough to know that uh, a lot of times what they're saying isn't what's really going on. And they're saying one thing to keep us from discovering another and, and things get hidden. Now, confidences need to be kept. Sometimes things need to be kept from the public discussion because they have serious, serious implications for life, for liberty, those kinds of things. I understand those kinds of confidences. But when somebody is sorting out misinformation from real information, then when they're censoring points of view because they know best, then you have to ask yourself, what are they hiding? Uh, what are they trying to accomplish? And one really good question in all of this, and, and I don't mean to belabor this point, I just think it's something we need to take seriously. Ask yourself, who benefits from suppressing certain information or ideas? Who benefits? Who's getting a benefit? Because what people do 
and what they report and what they don't report, what people talk about and what they don't talk about, the ideas people are willing to wrestle with and the ones they just want to dismiss out of hand, all of that, all of that begins to be better understood, more correctly exposed when we ask ourselves, who benefits? Who benefits from these ideas? Well, I hope that helps you as you think about this idea of misinformation, because we live in a time when when this is a serious threat in our country. We never thought that would be the case. We always talked about freedom of speech, freedom of the press. I thought we all believe in that. Well, we do. We still say we do, but we don't have a free press if they're deciding what you can and cannot know. If they're suppressing information by censoring it rather than having the public dialogue. So anyway, you get the idea. I'm sure I have enough confidence in you that that my stirring up these ideas is enough to kind of move you in the right direction and get you to think about these things a little more carefully, a little more, more intentionally. So let's talk about the solution to the things that go on. You know, we talked about earlier, is there any hope? And we talked about the source of hope. We find the source of hope in God himself. And, and we, then we need to say, well, that's the source. What's God's solution? Well, God's solution may surprise us a little bit. And I think we learn some key information from the story of Elijah and Elisha that we're going to pick up in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, last week we talked about Elijah and his encounters with the with the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and how God answered with fire from heaven, decisively demonstrated that he was God. Elisha, or pardon me, Elijah ran for his life to get away from the wicked queen Jezebel who sent him a death threat. And he was exhausted, but God picked him up, re-energized him, redirected him back to be part of the solution to the problems of that day. And so Elijah went, he was faithful. And one of the things that God sent him to do was to identify his successor, the person who would follow him, Elisha. That's why I sometimes mix those up. Very similar names. Elisha was to become Elijah's successor. So we want to pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 2. We have skipped some of the story of Elijah's return to active ministry and what he was doing, but he went back to work for God and for good, and now he's coming to the end of his time, and we're going to examine the story of some specific things that happened as Elijah transferred, in a sense, or we might say God chose his successor, which is really true, but the transition from Elijah to Elisha as told to us in 2 Kings chapter 2. So let me just read some of the story. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to start with, with chapter 2 of 2 Kings, verse 1, and I'm going to read today from the Common English Bible. I, a lot of times people are reluctant to pick up different translations, and I don't want you to be reluctant. They can all be valuable, and sometimes they help clarify the story for us, and I just want to read this so you'll have a taste of a different one and, and begin to think about, well, maybe I shouldn't put myself through the misery of trying to sort through an English translation that I have trouble understanding or reading. And maybe this one will appeal to you. And you can find that there's a, a free app for your phone called the Bible app. And it's, you can find this translation there and you can find printed copies of it. 
but anyway, that's I mean, this is not an advertisement for this English translation. It's an it's an attempt to say to all of us, we need to read the Bible that we can understand and make sense of, not worry about being bound to a specific translation because we think the language is is more what we should be reading and we should be working harder to do that. I made that mistake when I was in high school. I don't make it now. I want to read so that I can understand and comprehend what God has to say, not battle through archaic words or difficult language. So anyway, cha chapter two of second Kings, beginning with verse one. Now the Lord was going to take Elijah up to heaven in a windstorm and Elijah and Elisha were leaving Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here because the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I won't leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came out to Elisha. These prophets said to Elisha, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Elisha said, yes, I know. Don't talk about it. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here because the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I won't leave you. So they went to Jericho. The group of prophets from Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? He said, yes, I know. Don't talk about it. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here because the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I won't leave you. So both of them went on together. 50 members from the group of prophets also went along, but they stood at a distance. Both Elijah and Elisha stood beside the Jordan River. Elijah then took his coat, rolled it up and hit the water. Then the water was divided in two. Both of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, what do you want me to do for you before I'm taken away from you? Elisha said, let me have twice your spirit. Elijah said, you've made a difficult request. If you can see me when I'm taken from you, then it will be yours. If you don't see me, it won't happen. They were walking along, talking, when suddenly a fiery chariot and fiery horses appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went to heaven in a windstorm. Elisha was watching, and he cried out, Oh, my father, my father, Israel's chariots and its riders. When he could no longer see him, Elisha took hold of his clothes and ripped them in two. Then Elisha picked up the coat that had fallen from Elijah. He went back and stood beside the banks of the Jordan River. He took the coat that had fallen from Elijah and hit the water. He said, where is the Lord, Elijah's God? And when he hit the water, it divided in two. Then Elisha crossed over. The group of prophets from Jericho saw him from a distance. They said, Elijah's spirit has settled on Elisha. So that's the story that some of us are familiar with of, of Elijah going to heaven. Fascinating story, really, really insightful and helpful. And we want to kind of walk down through this story and see what, what God can help us understand about what's happening here. So it's clear that 
that the time has come for Elijah to go to heaven, and that, that much is given to us right at the beginning of the chapter. Chapter, No question about that. Now, it tells us that, that Elijah and Elisha were traveling together, and they reference in verse 1, traveling to Gilgal. Well, there's a little uncertainty. I shouldn't say a little. There's quite a lot of uncertainty about the location of that town referred to as Gilgal. There's another place that's referred to as Gilgal, but that, because of the way it, all of the things are described, can't be what is referred to here. And so the, the assumption is that, that Gilgal, that's referred to in verse 1, is that it's north of Bethel somehow, and Elijah and Elisha are then traveling south to Bethel. Well, Elijah says to Elisha in verse 2, stay here, the Lord is sending me to Bethel. Well, now, it's, we understand that Elisha is Elijah's servant or assistant or aide. I don't know if we'd call him assistant prophet. I'm not trying to make up that kind of description, but that's what he served as. And it was clear that from the, from the earlier time when Elijah selected Elisha, that he was to be the successor. And so now it's really curious that he says to Elisha, stay here, the Lord is sending me to Bethel. Bethel. Well, uh, Elisha more or less responds, no way, I'm not beginning to think about that, not going to do it. I'm going with you. Well, this persists in a couple of other situations, and we'll get down through that, but, but it appears that giving Elisha the chance to stay behind may have been a test, may have been testing Elisha to see if he is really, really up to the challenge. And when one writer suggested that it may have been a test of Elisha's persistence, would he, would he hang in there no matter what? And uh, that's a key trait. I mean, Elijah had that. He didn't quit. He kept going, going. And so the, the question is, was that a way to, to kind of put Elisha to the test? Well, they traveled to Bethel, and Bethel was an important religious center, and, and there were some prophets there, and the prophets say to Elisha, do you know that the Lord's taking Elijah today? Well, he knew that, and, and he said, Elisha said, yeah, but don't talk about it. It makes me wonder why it's so hush-hush. Not sure I've figured out why it's so hush-hush, but it says that repeatedly. And, and the other thing we should realize that this company of prophets, or sometimes they're referred to as sons of prophets, were prophets in training. They, um, they were learning to be prophets. We don't know what that exactly means, but we know that that's what happened there. And certainly they seemed to have some, some understanding of being a prophet because they knew that the Lord was taking Elijah. Well, the, Elijah says to Elisha again, there at Bethel, stay here, the Lord is sending me to Jericho. Huh, another test. Well, and Elisha responds the same way, not going to stay, no way, I'm, I'm going with you. And so they take the trip from Bethel to Jericho. It's about 12 miles, mostly downhill. It would take them about half a day to get to Jericho, but they get to Jericho. Um, Jericho is a neat place to visit. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, visit Jericho. I remember being there. I, I wonder what, what they saw when they walked through. They, they could have seen some of what we saw, the, the, the ruins of the wall that, that fell down, those kinds of things. Uh, we don't really know, but they went to Jericho. Again, there were prophets at Jericho that said to Elisha, do you know that the Lord is taking Elijah today? Well, yes, Elisha responded, but don't talk about it. More hush, hush. 
or hush, hush, don't talk about it. It's going to happen. Don't talk about it. Well, once again, Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. The Lord is sending me to the Jordan. And Elisha again, says, no way. I'm not staying. Now notice this has happened repeatedly. And, and so it does help us understand that maybe this really was a test. You know, you and I, we, we perhaps overlook that God brings things along that require us to be persistent. God, God is usually not, usually not the God who calls us to give up. He wants us to be persistent. So they travel onto the Jordan. Elisha goes with Elijah in response to you know, him saying, no way, I'm not staying here. So they go together onto the Jordan River. That's about five miles east of Jericho. And interestingly enough, 50 of the prophets go with them, traveling at a distance, it says. I, I kind of get the idea, and I don't know that we can prove this, but I get the idea they were being respectful, traveling at a distance, so they didn't intrude on that. But it turns out they played a very important role in the story of the transition from Elijah to Elisha. And we're going to pick that up. When we get back in just a moment. We're going to take a break and uh, give you a chance to, to gather your thoughts and, and demonstrate your persistence. Because if you're persistent with this story, you're going to stay tuned and we're going to listen together to the voice of God as he guides us through the story of Elijah transferring the prophetic ministry to Elisha. And we're going to learn something about persistence for our own lives. And God's going to challenge us not to give up. So many people want to say, it's just so bad, or it's just so something. And they just want to step back. But God is calling us to step up. So you step up and take a little break, but step up and get right back here and show your persistence. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're talking about faith, and we're developing absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to do that together again right after this. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use healthy cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The immune super boost, focus and memory, and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. 
That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Welcome back. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we stretch each other, challenge each other, uh, sometimes prod and push each other to develop faith. Faith, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want us to, to come to trust Him more. Uh, there's an old psalm that says, Oh, for grace to trust Him more. And I think God is helping us to trust Him more. Well, we're looking at the story of Elijah transferring the responsibility and the authority for being a prophet in Israel to Elisha. So we're looking at the story that that results in Elijah going to heaven and Elisha picking up the responsibility as prophet. And we've been following them in their travels from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and now to the Jordan River, where they travel together to the bank of the Jordan River, and there are 50 prophets that go with them but stay at a distance. And we can think of those 50 prophets as corroborating witnesses to the events that take place going forward. So here they watch Elijah and Elisha as they stand by the Jordan River, and Elijah rolled up his cloak or his coat, and he hit the water. The water divides in two, and they cross over on dry ground. Wow, what a great story. What, a, what an amazing thing to witness. Now, the first thing that we need to make sure we understand that Different English translations will talk about this in a little different way than, than what you, you and I might normally be familiar with. And, and the idea of rolling up the coat seems a little unusual to us. We don't do that. And, and in this translation that I read, it, it does say he took his coat, rolled it up, and hit the water. And we might say, well, what's the big deal of rolling it up? Well, I don't know why he rolled it up, but I do know this. We should not think of him doing that as meaning that the cloak, the coat, is a magic wand. You know, many are the kids who, who hear about a magic wand and they wonder if it's really true and they kind of imagine what they would do if they had a magic wand. Well, we should not at all think of this act of rolling up his coat or his cloak and hitting the water as that becoming a magic wand. Uh, he did it. We don't know exactly why that's the method he used, but that's the method he used to cross over the, the Jordan on dry ground. It's also reminiscent to us of when 
God's people were leaving Egypt and slavery. They came to the Red Sea and they crossed over on, wait for it, well, you know the story, dry ground. And they got away from the Egyptians. And in the same way, many years later, when they had processed a lot of getting used to God and understanding that they needed to have confidence in God's faithfulness, they came to that Red Sea in a, much the same place. We don't know the exact place where they crossed, but they crossed from the east side of Jordan to the west and entered the Promised Land. So there's parallels to things that have gone on before. Now, in this case, Elijah and Elisha are crossing the Red or, pardon me, the Jordan River from west to east. So they're leaving Jericho and going the other way, but they're crossing the Jordan, and that's the significance that we have here. Well, they get across to the other side, and, and we find that Elijah, now rather than making a statement to Elisha that it's something he's going to do, he turns to Elisha and he says, what do you want me to do for you before I'm taken? So, you know, if, if Elisha was trying to hide from Elijah that he's going to be taken, that then, then um, now we know Elijah knew what was, was happening. And he asked this very open-ended question, very open-ended. Now, it's really kind of interesting that he would ask such an open-ended question. Uh, you remember Solomon was asked an open-ended question you know, uh, what, what would he have God do for him? And, and he asked for wisdom. Well, in this case, Elisha says, let me have twice your spirit. And sometimes we read that and, and it's sometimes it's referred to as a double portion. Um, I don't, I don't want us to get caught up on the specifics of, of what is said. This English translation that we read together a few minutes ago was let me have twice your spirit. Well, we need to understand what's going on here because it was a little different than what our, at a first glance, understanding is. It doesn't mean that Elisha wants twice Elijah's spirit. Uh, it, it, it means that he wants the, the portion that would go to a firstborn inheritance. So the first person in an inheritance situation, according to the laws of Israel, would get a double portion. That didn't mean it was twice as much. It means that he would get more than the next successor or the next person in line of inheritance, or, or we could say twice as much as any other successor would receive. It was the normal inheritance right of a firstborn, and in this case, Elisha expected to be the principal successor to Elijah, and so he wanted that portion that would go to the principal successor. That kind of makes sense, but it's really interesting that that's what Elisha asked for. So if Elisha was being tested through this travel from Gilgal now to the east side of the Jordan River, if he was being tested and even though he was Elijah's designated successor, he still needed to demonstrate that he had the qualities necessary, then he was showing his persistence or his faithfulness because he didn't aban abandon, he didn't stay behind when Elijah went forward. He didn't stay behind and later say, whoops, I better catch up. No, he, he would not let Elijah go. So he demonstrated persistence, and we might call that faithfulness. And the second thing, he demonstrated by his response to this question, 
that he needed the presence of God's Spirit if he was going to be the successor to Elijah. Very important, very interesting awareness and very significant statement that Elisha makes. Well, Elijah says to him, you've asked for something difficult. And, and I stopped right there when I was studying this. You've asked for something difficult. And, and my first thought is, well, why? Why is that request difficult? Because you and I know nothing is too difficult for God. So, so it wasn't a difficult request from God's perspective. Nothing's difficult for God. I mean, he's the God of resurrection after all. So why is the request something difficult? Well, maybe from Elijah's perspective, it was difficult because it wasn't his decision to make. Maybe that's why he was thinking it was difficult. It wasn't something he could grant. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, but even as Elijah says it's difficult, in the, in the telling of the story, he doesn't say, well, give me some time to think about that. Immediately, he answers with a statement that, Elijah, if you see me being taken, then you'll have that double portion that is, means the inheritance of a firstborn or the principal successor, we might say. If you don't see me, you won't have it. So while it's difficult, then Elijah, in the, almost in the same breath, says, but here's how you'll get it. So that's really kind of interesting. Now, again, if persistence is part of what is necessary for Elisha to take up his responsibilities with um, continuing the prophetic ministry of Elijah, then, then um, persistence is linked to this statement because now for sure Elisha cannot, must not let Elijah out of his sight. So there's persistence again. But you might also wonder if, if about the significance of seeing. Yeah, it might be part of the final, or the final part of the test that, that's necessary. But maybe seeing Elijah taken up to heaven required a revelation from God and would be, because Elisha was privileged to see it, would be confirmation that Elisha was the successor. Maybe it refers to that if God opens your eyes to see me taken, then those eyes being opened by God would verify your standing as successor, Elijah. And because God has been willing for you to see that, then you can be sure God will give you what you need of my spirit or of really God's spirit. That's what they were talking about there. So they're walking along and talking and a chariot of fire appears with horses of fire. And they're separated and Elijah goes up to heaven to be with God. And, and there's questions because you'll see this depicted different ways. Did he go up in the chariot or did he go up in a whirlwind or a windstorm, as the text we read said? Well, I'm not splitting hairs with artists. I understand why they would want to depict him in a chariot of fire. And sure, the chariot of fire is mentioned. The text is pretty specific that he goes up in a windstorm. It could be that the chariot of fire and the horses of fire are, are a phenomenon that Elisha is having trouble describing. May he's never seen anything like that. And so maybe that's part of what it is. But Elijah is caught up in a windstorm or whirlwind rather than the chariot. It's real interesting that here they are on the east side of the Jordan River. 
And throughout Elijah's life, there are parallels to the life of Moses. And it was on the east side of the Jordan near Mount Nebo, where Moses died up on that mountain. It's about 10 miles from the Jordan. It was in the vicinity of the crossing. There's no confirmation that that Elijah and Elisha were on Mount Nebo when that this happens, but it's a fascinating connection that they would be in the vicinity of that. And of course, because of the description of the chariots of fire and the whirlwind, that's that's obviously connected to God's activity from other sources in the scriptures. Uh, we don't know again about the specifics of the chariot and the horses, but certainly what we can tell from that is God was involved here in Elijah going to, to heaven, and we cannot dispute that. We would not try to deny that. And of course, it's also interesting and, and should not be overlooked that Elijah does not die. And because of the link between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, Elijah not dying is a bit of a, a bit of an indicator, a precursor, we could say, of Christ's resurrection and ascension because the New Testament links Moses and Elijah as coming before Jesus. So there's, there's just this very insightful and intriguing imagery that kind of fires our imagination and doesn't answer all of our concrete questions, but it sure points us to God doing something. And, and Elijah goes to heaven in a windstorm. Now, if I have to make a decision, and often we do have to make a decision based on the information we get, but I'll just give you the way I see that is Elijah didn't go in the chariot of fire. And one of the things that I think about there is, well, maybe the fire would have incinerated him. Maybe that's why he went up in the whirlwind. You know, again, I don't know, but I think that's some of the things we need to wrestle with. God is obviously represented in the story of Elijah by fire. His presence was clear on Mount Carmel with fire. And so that's associated with Elijah. But Elijah wasn't in the fire, and maybe maybe we need to be careful about how we describe that, and maybe we need to not allow the artistic renditions to, to drive our interpretive decisions. That makes sense? Well, anyway, Elisha watched as Elijah ascends to heaven, and he cries out, my father, Israel's chariots and its rider. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, we certainly know that this expression, my father, was an expression that that was often used to designate the leader of a group in the same way a son in that group would be a member of that group. So that's not really too difficult to figure out. Um, the chariots and horsemen of Israel is a little bit more challenging. Who knows, maybe Elisha is just doing his best to describe a phenomenon no one had ever seen before, and so he is grasping for words. Maybe that's a title related to something that Elijah had done, and maybe Elijah is associated with the charioteer, bringing God with him, and then God taking him up. Uh, we, we don't really know all of those kinds of things. There are some fascinating connections we could make, but the clear, the clear point is that God was there taking Elijah to heaven. And then, of course, Elisha is depicted as tearing his clothes, and that's a sign of mourning, of sadness, that Elijah was gone. Well, in all the process of this that, that seems to have happened in, in a moment or moments, Elijah's cloak or coat, the old English translation often uses the word mantle, Elisha picked up Elijah's coat and headed back to the bank of the Jordan. 
Well, this is the same cloak that Elijah had draped over Elisha when he selected him in 1 Kings chapter 19. You can read that. Look specifically at verse 19. So he picks up this cloak that clearly represented a prophetic cloak. Now, pro prophets' cloaks were distinctive, that they were likely made of animal skin and probably hairy. I wonder if they were itchy, but I doubt it. They wouldn't have used them probably if they weren't able to help them somehow. Although there's no certainty that this Elijah's cloak was this way, the certainty is that Elisha inherited the spirit and power of Elijah. And this cloak, because Elijah had used it to call Elisha into the prophetic ministry, now this indicates that Elisha has inherited that ministry. But there's more than that. So Elisha stands there with the cloak, and he hits the water with the cloak, and he says out loud, where is the Lord Elijah's God? Well, cloak hits the water, the water divides in two, Elisha goes across, and, uh, you know, in a sense, Elisha has asked, answered his own question when he says, where is the Lord Elijah's God? The Lord is right there parting the waters for Elisha. And it also, this miracle verifies that Elisha was now a prophet in the line of Elijah. It's, it's also very interesting that he asked it that way. Where is the Lord, Elijah's God? It sets up credit going to God for the miracle. Elisha doesn't set it up to, for him to take credit. It sets up credit for God. That's significant. And the fact that it happens like it did, which is a parallel to when Elijah and Elisha crossed, is certainly a verification that Elisha now represents God in the same way Elijah had. All this time, the Jericho prophets are standing there, and they see what's going on, and they say, Elijah's spirit is on Elisha. Wow. And that's exactly what Elisha had asked for. And now Elisha has the responsibility, the opportunity even, to continue what Elijah had started. So we see all through here the, the specifics of the story of the prophetic succession. We understand that it's the will and call of God that means a prophet is a prophet of God. It's not something they just sign up for. We can see that in the various ways the story unfolds. And, and then we begin to ask ourselves, and we should, now what's that have to do with us? What's that have to do with this great story? Love the story, all that, but what's it have to do with us? Well, several things that I think we need to take really seriously, and I sometimes think we don't take seriously, well, not just sometimes, we just don't take it seriously enough. We all recognize this part of it as the need for the Spirit of God to help us. Most of us who are followers of Jesus realize we can't do it on our own. So we recognize the need for the Spirit of God, and, and God recognized that need in the life of Elisha, and he recognized that need in the life of his people following the ascension of Jesus. So remember, Jesus said to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they did, and he came. That's what we call Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. So God knows we need his spirit, and God sent his spirit to his people at Pentecost. And he sends his spirit, the New Testament is quite clear about that, to his followers today. You're a follower of Jesus. You come before him, and you give allegiance to him, and you pledge to follow him, and you change your life 
and live it as a, after the pattern of Jesus. He forgives you from all the past nonsense, and you go forward, and the Spirit comes into your life. There was an eagerness to receive the Spirit by Elisha because he specifically mentioned that he needed it. There was a certain amount of eagerness, I guess you could say, with the disciples of Pentecost because they did what Jesus said by waiting. Elisha demonstrated it big time because he wouldn't let Elijah out of his sight. The disciples demonstrated it by faithfully doing what Jesus said. They waited in Jerusalem, and the Spirit came. They waited demonstrates a parallel to Elisha's persistence. They wouldn't, they wouldn't leave until what Jesus said would happen, happened, and it did. Now, we all know, and we don't have to wonder and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, we all know that, that that's part of God's gift to us. But I think God is calling us to a level of persistence that we sometimes overlook because we understand clearly from the New Testament that God gives special abilities to his people when he sends the Holy Spirit into their lives. Maybe it's an ability to be a leader in hospitality. Maybe you have the special ability to serve people. Maybe you have the special ability to make money and give lots of money to God's efforts because resources are necessary. You can read in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and they talk about this concept of spiritual gifts. And we need to persist and develop and use our spiritual gifts. It's absolutely essential. But I think sometimes people, they just won't even take that seriously. None of us who are involved in, in representing God in the world can do it without the Spirit helping us. We just cannot. And if, and if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't know what mine are, well, go read Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and begin to, to look at those seriously and say, well, what special ability has God given me? That's not because you're a great person. It's not, it's not about you. It wasn't about Elisha. It was about God's gift. God's gift of the Spirit to Elisha was because God had chosen him to be the prophet. God has given you special abilities he has especially equipped you to do something in the kingdom of God, and we need to, to identify that, then we need to get better at doing it, and then we need to use it. And that's a dynamic process. We need to get started on that. So Elisha parted the Jordan because he had clearly demonstrated the Spirit of God. Our ministry, what we do in response to the gifts that God has given us, when we use our spiritual gifts— we are doing exactly what Elisha did. We are showing evidence that God's presence is with us, and he is present in our world. Now, that's two things, okay? God helps us do things, and we take delight in doing the things that he has gifted us to do. Yes, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it takes effort. That's not what we're saying here, but it is a delight. It is something that we do because it's just amazing what happens when we do it. It's just amazing how God helps us when we actually do what he has gifted us to do. And when we do that, then we are giving testimony of God's presence in the world today. Where is God? Is there any hope? The hope is found in God's solution, and God's solution is found in his people who recognize that he has given them gifts that they can then develop and use 
And when they do that, they demonstrate his presence in the world. When Elisha took that coat and parted the waters, he was demonstrating God's presence in the world. When you serve people because God has given you that gift, you are demonstrating God's presence in the world. You see, and and nobody's argued with me about this. I was a little surprised when I first began to talk about it this way, because I don't think we talk about it this way. I'm, I'm also pretty sure it's not original with me, although I don't know where I got the idea other than, than God helped me. But we are the people of God, and the Scripture talks about us as being the body of Christ. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing. If we are the body of Christ, then we are the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. Now, think about that. That's why the church matters, because we are the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. Wonder why people don't notice God and don't think God is up to things? Maybe it's because the church has not taken heart and taken seriously God's spiritual gifts, special abilities, and put them into practice. Maybe the the world around us hasn't witnessed us acting out God's gifts to us. And maybe when we, the church, the visible presence of Jesus in the world, start doing that more intentionally, and that we start ministering out of that which God has given us, maybe people will notice. Well, I don't think maybe, I think definitely. Instead, we, we tend to retreat, and we tend to, tend to think it's humility to say, well, God hasn't given me gifts. He hasn't given you the same gifts I have. I understand that. You understand that. So what? God gives us the gifts that are for us, and now we're responsible for them. Some of you, well, probably all of you, can do many things that I can't do well. So take heart, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and He is leading us to be the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. So figure out how you can do that, and we'll report back to each other next week. I'm so glad you're listening. Thanks for joining me. Until next week, go with God.